Welcome to the Doxa Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Rudy. I'm the pastor at Doxa Church, and I am not joined by my wife, Julie, today. It has been way too long since we last had a podcast. We went on a family vacation to Disney World. Incredible time. Julie is very pregnant, and we just have not had a chance to carve out the time together. I think everyone really understands that, and I appreciate your patience on all of it. I have some ideas about what I want to do with this podcast and going forward. I'm thinking about rebranding it a little bit, changing it here and there for the future. But right now, this is still a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. That's still our emphasis. And in this last season we had with Julie and myself, we have just been doing overflow content that I wasn't able to fit into my sermons. So we were talking about it here in this podcast. And this Sunday, we're having an outdoor service. There's going to be some baptisms, and we're going through the series Chosen Sojourners in the book of First Peter. And we've come to the point at the end of First Peter chapter 3 that is honestly one of the top five most head-scratching portions of the entire Bible. And I want to know what it means, why it's in the Bible, and I know I'm not alone in that desire. I think most of you who are listening to this think the same way. What does this really mean, and why is Peter saying it? So this is one of those passages it is so difficult to try to wrap your head around that I just don't think it fits in with our message this Sunday morning. So here we are. You're listening, and I want to break it down for you the best I can. And there's two things I want you to learn from this before we even get into the text. And that's number one, how to approach and handle difficult passages of Scripture. You interpret scripture with scripture. And if necessary, you take the 100% obvious passages and you fit in what you don't understand around those passages of scripture. You let the text speak for itself. You never, ever, ever add anything to what is written. Now, you can contemplate, you can deduct things, but stick to the context of what is written. What does the passage say? and let scripture interpret scripture, always. I want you to see that. And then number two, I want you to see the truth. If this is in scripture, God's revealed it for a reason. And even if we can't fully understand or be 100% certain in this area or that area, the goal is to understand what is God revealing about himself and then apply that to yourself. And I think we can still do that in 1 Peter 3. So I want to read the passage, and then we will dive right in. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, I read that entire section of this passage because I think all of it connects. And it's very important that you start with verse 13 all the way through 22 to really get what 19 and 20 and 21 are actually saying. So we'll start at the top. Jesus was crucified and he was raised to newness of life. He brought us to God by paying the sacrifice for your sin. This is the gospel. This is what this is the truth that we have to rest everything on. You were brought to God because he died for your sin and rose again. The two key components of our salvation, our faith rests in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is paramount to everything we're going to say. He's resurrected. Sin can't keep him in the grave. There's victory over death. Secondly, Peter goes into another victorious element. There's victory over Satan and demons. And most of us are probably following great up through verse 18. The head-scratching stuff really begins in verse 19. I'll read that one again, just in case you don't have the Bible open in front of you. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. There's over 180 different interpretations of what Peter is talking about. And I haven't read every single last one in depth, believe me. But there's a lot of ideas about what Peter is saying. And I want to go about this in a very deductive way. There's three major questions that have to be answered if we're going to go anywhere with this. First of all, who are these spirits? Secondly, when was this proclamation made? When did that happen? And then third, you could throw on there, what did Jesus proclaim? What was he actually saying? Those are the three big questions if you want to make any effort at truly understanding this. And out of those 100 different interpretations, I'm going to save us all a bunch of time and just boil them down to the three big ones. There's really only three that hold any water, and good, faithful people who love Jesus can really hold one of these three. But I want to go through it this way. First of all, the interpretation itself. I'll give you these three interpretations. Then explanation. I want to explain my interpretation of it. And then I want to give you some application. So, first of all, the interpretations. Let's go through these, all three of them. Number one, who are the spirits? Well, this one is going to say that these are demonic beings that Jesus Christ preached to 
in his spirit being in between his death and resurrection. Maybe you've heard the idea that Christ descended into hell, like the Apostles' Creed says. There's this view that a lot of Christians hold that Jesus, I wouldn't say a lot, that a few Christians hold and that some Christians have heard about and, and vaguely scratch their heads about. But it's this idea that Jesus descended to Sheol, to the pit, and he proclaimed to the demonic beings in Hades victory over them in between those two nights where his physical body was in the grave before he arose. And if you just read the text, you can see how people come up with that interpretation. That's number one. Number two is, well, this one really came in defense of the first position. Because when you open up the door to this idea that Jesus Christ, before he came back on Easter Sunday with the resurrected body, descended into hell and proclaimed victory over the demonic spirits, you know, some demonic spirits are bound, some aren't. But say he did that, it now opens up another can of worms. Maybe it wasn't the demons because they don't have human souls, right? And they aren't human. Jesus didn't, didn't become an angelic being and die for their rebellion. He became a man and he died for human redemption. So maybe Jesus wasn't thumping his chest at the demons. Maybe he was proclaiming to the souls of men who are in this hell prison and giving them a second chance to be saved. So, so that's just an idea that people have extrapolated who had that first position. You know, you start debating it. And this is the way humans always are. Well, okay, if that's true, what if, what about this? So this is, goes way back to the early church. And Augustine, one of the amazing church fathers, he comes in and says, no, no, no. We know that it's appointed to men once to die and after that, the judgment. He's going off of the, the for sure obvious truths in scripture and he's building his his case and he's answering questions that are a little bit doubtful and not quite as clear he's he's taking the truth that he knows for sure and he's going with that first and then he's extrapolating so he's saying this cannot be a second chance at salvation like purgatory and in the defense of this bad idea that crept in from the first interpretation augustine came up with the second reasonable position the spirits are the human spirits of unbelievers in Noah's day. And how this goes is the pre-incarnate Christ, before Jesus the Son was born of a virgin on earth, he came and spoke through Noah and proclaimed righteousness and repentance to the unbelievers in Noah's day, and they rejected it. A little wild, right? But it supports this idea of first Peter one, that Jesus Christ spoke through the old Testament prophets. And I guess you could call Noah a prophet because Augustine did. And then there's view number three, Peter is referring to Christ's proclamation over all of his enemies, including the demonic forces against him. And this proclamation happened at his ascension when he ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of God. So who are the spirits? Well, it's demonic spirits. When? his ascension. And, and what was he saying? Well, it's a proclamation of victory over all who oppose God. We don't have any more specifics than that. And those are your best three interpretations. Trust me on that. And if you have another one, I would love to hear it. If you have one better than that, please let me know. But I'll tell you now where I lean, and then we'll go into the explanation. 
I strongly lean on view number three. And here's why. Number one, who are the spirits? I think these are definitely demonic spirits. Of, of anything in this passage that I'm the most sure of, it's that point. First of all, because in the Bible, every time spirits is used in the plural, it always refers to spiritual beings who are not human. There's one exception to that, and it's in Hebrews 12, where there's a clear designation that follows right after it to show the spirits were human. But every other reference, spirits refers to the angelic realm, either fallen angels or, or God's angels, God's messengers. Another reason I think this is demons is verse 22. It specifically, without any question, word for word speaks of angelic authorities. And it makes it abundantly clear that all angelic beings, whether the dark and fallen angels, as well as those who still serve God and are in the light, the entire hierarchy are in subjection to Jesus Christ. He reigns and rules over them. Even if they're in rebellion, they are under him. And on top of that, Here's where this gets really interesting, but I feel like it fits the context of Noah the best. The reason he uses Noah here, like he does, goes all the way back to Genesis 6, which is another one of the most uncomfortable head scratchers in the Bible. But this is the passage, maybe you've heard of it, where we learn about the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? I'll just be honest, it's a weird passage. If you're reading it just straight and you're not really doing mental gymnastics around it, you have a group of fallen angels, very, very wicked demons who come down and impregnate women and unleash a transhuman, demonic, hybrid group of people on earth. These are giants, the Nephilim, the mighty, renowned men talking about physical strength. Now, Christians who tend to shy away from the supernatural stuff, the ones who don't want to sound weird or get too spiritual, they want to fully understand everything, just answer, answer, answer. I want it to be locked tight. They don't like that passage very much. And there's a lot of ink that has been spilt on trying to explain it away. But I have to say, there's nothing to hide from. Demons are real. The spiritual realm exists. And how did this happen? Why did this happen? We don't know for sure. Genesis 6 does not give us a lot of details. But all we do know is that in the days of Noah, man was depraved. And their thoughts were only evil continuously. So what can we surmise or assume from that? People rebelled so far away from God that they started worshiping Satan. Should that be surprising? Not really. It's still happening today. And when drugs are involved, gateways are opened into the spiritual realm. And when perverted, wicked people open themselves up to Satan and his demonic realm, when you have occult, satanic things going on, which which these people would have been in the camp of occultic disgusting practices they're opening themselves up to demons and demons are going to come in and destroy they're going to take every inch they can and we don't really need to know any more than that right except that demons 
broke the code. They, they were in some way invited in and they impregnated women and they created this transhuman race that Genesis 6 calls the Nephilim. Now that is most likely part of the reason why God sent a worldwide flood. He needed to cleanse the gene pool for one. Now we don't have a lot to go on with this, uh, but there's probably some similarities here that happened with the people in Canaan. And when all those pagans that had those very occultic child sacrifices, those nasty depraved people that were inhabiting the promised land, when Joshua and Caleb and the Israelites were supposed to wipe them out, every man, woman, and child, we look at that and like, oh, that's horrible. Like, why would God allow something like that? Well, again, there were giants in the land then as well. And it's very possible that again, the gene pool was distorted with transhumans because of this supernatural demonic stuff that was going on. A little scary to think about, but demons are real. Spiritual realm is real. And I don't think we need to just excuse it away. Every time I've ever talked with people about this, I've had conversations. This has come up. When I talk to some people that are spiritually out there, I've talked to tattoo artists before about this and yoga instructors none of these people have a problem with talking about spiritual things in the spiritual realm that sound kind of creepy they actually eat this stuff up and it's really nice to know that the bible actually has answers the bible isn't lost when it comes to these things that we can't fully understand so in this vile time after god sends the flood there's a few passages of scripture throughout the Bible that actually talk about how God has a certain number of demons locked up in the pit. You can see this in the ministry of Jesus when he casts out those demons out of the two men in Gadara. They accosted Jesus and you can just see the hate and the vile spewing out of their mouths. And they said, are you here to torment us before the time? And Jesus cast them into the swine. And there's this sense of they knew they're going to go somewhere and they didn't want to get locked up in the pit. Totally locked away. You also have the demons that are set free in the book of Revelation. At the end of the millennium, right before the battle of Armageddon, they are set free. Some of the worst demons are set free. It's also referenced in Jude 6. So now you can probably see why I didn't talk about all of this on Sunday morning. <laughs> but when was this proclamation made? I think it was made when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And here's why. Verse 18 is talking about resurrection and ascension. And verse 22 is also talking about ascension. So why wouldn't the middle of that also be talking about the ascension? If you go back to the first view, the view that says this was that period of time when Jesus was in the grave before his body arose, some translations even have the word descending in there. If he's going to proclaim this to the demons who are locked up, isn't it a little premature that Jesus did this right before he rose again? I know we're we're out there right now. Like, I want you to just think about this with me as well. But it was already prophesied that Jesus would rise, yes. 
it was the plan of God that Jesus would, would rise and conquer death. Absolutely. But still, this view is saying it happened before the victory was truly sealed. He's a few hours away from doing that. You know, and if not for the resurrection, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, you would still be dead in your sins. So again, that view isn't airtight. And also, this view that Jesus descended into hell only came around in 400 AD. And the language just is not very clear. Peter is not using the obvious word for descend. It's actually the same word in verse 19, which is went and proclaimed is the same as verse 22, has gone into heaven. And that's actually the same word that is in Acts 1 when Jesus ascends. It's the same word there. So I really see this is talking about the ascension of Jesus at the right hand of God rather than descending. And then the last question that I brought up is, what is the content of this message that was proclaimed? And to that, we don't know. You got to let the Bible speak for itself, and it's not going there. So it's best to assume the content of the message falls in line with the overall theme of the passage. And what is the point of this passage? Jesus triumphs over his enemies. Even the very worst ones who have ever been in opposition to him, Lucifer and the vicious fallen angels from Genesis 6, even those formidable foes will fall to Jesus. No enemy can stand against Jesus. And if you know Jesus, no enemy can stand against you. That's what he's saying to the Christians who were in persecution in his letter. He's talking about how, hey, you're going to suffer. People are going to mistreat you. But don't worry about it. Because they can hurt you physically, but they can't touch your soul. Jesus proclaimed victory. So I'm view three. I think that the context of this letter up to this point is all about Peter teaching that you need to have a good conscience because you're going to face persecution. And when you do, it's better to suffer for doing good, if it be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. And Christ suffered once for sins. He did that for you. And when you do suffer in this world, remember, that's not where it ends. This present suffering is not going to last because Jesus reigns. Jesus conquered. He is victorious. He's defeated every foe and he's triumphed over them. And if you know Jesus, you are on the right side of history. The world is not on the right side of history. They could use that phrase, but in a few years, they'll change it. They'll flip it around. Jesus ascended up to heaven. He is our living hope, and he has proclaimed victory over the captives and led captives out of captivity, which Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, which is another quote from Psalm 68, which is another passage talking about Jesus' ascension and his dominion forever. So he's your king, and he rules over the spiritual realm too. And the point here is, have confidence, have assurance. You are a champion through Jesus Christ, and your victory is sealed. It completely rests in him. 
That's the confidence that this passage gives you, the boldness that this passage gives you. And a secondary application that I would add is don't shy away from the spiritual stuff. Every time I've talked about this with your super spiritual people, they eat it up. And it just makes so much more sense. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe this. It's in the Bible and it's there for a reason. So please let me know if you have any questions. I hope this helps you to tie up some loose ends and give you more confidence in scripture. And please stay tuned. I will let you know where we go with this podcast throughout the summer. And I look forward to having another one again soon. You are loved.